Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. So now that we've started recording, I can talk about my terrible nose picking habit, which I've developed exclusively over the course of COVID-19 quarantine. Uh, I have managed to work my way into every single time that I feel a slight disturbance in my nostrils, just jamming one of my digits. I actually and figuring don't like it out. that I recommended you record just that. I actually around feel really gross about yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't think that I can only I actually myself. very much regret telling you you should start recording. <laughs> this is reflecting badly you on all this. Remember this lesson for next time. Uh, yeah. But remember... I don't, I don't know how to segue. It's Try Love. It's a literal mm-hmm. roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Find us on Twitter at Try Love Podcast. Find the Trilon itself at Trilon Cinema and at Trilon.org where you can get tickets and merch and even club memberships and cool stuff uh, and ways to support the Trilon in uh, weird, weird COVID times and otherwise. My name is Jason Daphnis. Uh, oh, no, my quote is on my phone, but I'm going to... Wait until I pull it up. They that said that in the film. It. That is the one. Um, oh, I don't actually have a line. Anyway, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Je suis Philippe Greenleaf. Vous pouvez me trouver à l'Hôtel Excelsior. Are you going to tell us your name? Or I guess you already have. You're Philip Greenleaf. But uh, I, I'll go. I'll go next. You really lit up Jason's ass pretty good there. But I'm I'm still feel the need to commentate because I might not look it. But I've got lots of imagination. I'm Harry Mack, and you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry. And I'm Aaron. And folks, I cannot wait till it gets warmer so I can really start dressing. You can find me on Twitter at RB Please. Uh, one or a couple of housekeeping notes before we actually start the discussion. Uh, as of the tam- time we're recording this, the date is January 23rd. It has officially been three years of Try Love. We've pub- published our first episode of this show oh, shit. on January 22nd, 2019. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. We published that episode, um, never knowing that we'd make it to this many episodes or that we'd have this crew. Uh, we won't get into the uh, heuristics of who and when joined because it's hotly debated, even though it's clearly codified in Google Chats somewhere when people <laughs> actually started showing up for this show. But uh, if you listen to this show, you're in good company. Thank you so much for sticking around. Um, just wanted to celebrate that tiny little milestone of ours, uh, and uh, we hope you keep listening. But um, I also want to get off the bet that uh, tickets are now officially available for something that we've been really um, hyping up for the last few months, uh, and that is the Satoshi Kone series at the Trilon Cinema. That is... That's that's right. All four of the late, <laughs> of the late mangaka slash anime directors uh, feature films are going to be playing at the Triline in March, including one 35 millimeter print of Paprika. It's going to be a new way for us all to watch that movie. Uh, I am absolutely quelling over this. I, I cannot wait. It's happening in March. Find your tickets at Trilon.org, and I'll put a, uh, a link to those in the show notes as well. Um, I want to see the Jason, are you... Huh? 
I was going to say, is this a bittersweet moment as you've, you've gotten what you've always wanted, but are there no more worlds left for you to conquer? Like, no, no, is no, this, this is, it for oh, you, you know? no, this is the cusp of a whole new, this is like the, the, the penetration point for a whole new world, Aaron. Like this is anime at the trial on. This, this is, is what I've been asking beginning. for since like, since like early 2020, like before pandemic was show more anime at the trial on. We saw, we've seen a couple of anime like officially endorsed at the trial on and like one or two volunteer picks. Uh, and I've heard that there's been some like random OVAs pulled that John was able to secure on film, but like nothing, nothing like this. This is a whole new world, baby. So it's the opposite. And, right. And clearly and, the and, next and, step is showing an all night uh, run of paranoia agent. Like there's clearly additional territory for us to, to conquer. Yes. Even right. within so this narrow vein. The yeah. trial on is that we are, if, if we were insufferable before now you've given us an inch and it's our turn to take a mile. You know what I mean? It's absolutely, we have precedence now. So uh, watch out. F- famously, uh, Harry and I exclusively have been taking credit for this uh, decision and this happenstance because every, I think almost every single time that we've talked to John at length, more than like a passing hello has been, we've proselytized somehow playing anime. And I think we might have Again, not to take too much credit, but we're only going to take 100% of it. Might have dropped a little poison in his ear about Satoshi Kone like a number of years Specifically. ago. Oh, yeah. Specifically. yeah like years ago. This, and, this and has like, been a campaign we've been waging for years. And when we got this slightest victory, whiff, yes. we, we smelled blood in the water. It was like, what, mid-2021 or late-2020? something. We saw John, and he was talking about possibly, maybe wanting to do this. <laughs> and I, and uh, you you cannot imagine what I looked like in the lobby of the Trilon Cinema that day. Uh, and Anyway, so get your tickets. Please, to please. <laughs> yeah, I mean, kissing that, is that was what John's mistake like, yeah. as yeah. the Trilon's mistake has always been historically as been being so polite to us and encouraging us, which has only made us far worse than <laughs> you we give them an inch. You give them an inch. They have yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much uh, to all of the Trilon for making it possible for us to be as annoying as we are. Thank you. Uh, and thank you everybody else for listening. We have covered, of course, one of those films, Perfect Blue, as part of the mm-hmm. Non-Lon Boys Pick series. Uh, we'll figure out what we what exactly we do uh, around that time. But you can expect episodes from us on each of those other movies, um, hopefully, uh, if everybody's able to join for them. And if you're in the cities, uh, get out there or at least buy a ticket. Have no idea what the world's going to look like by March 2022. Um, so get your ticket now. They're available now. Buy tickets now. Uh, personally, I want to see the ticket counters at zero. I want to see this be a blowout. If Terminator 2 can do it, if uh, Kiki's Delivery Service can do it, if fucking Akira can do it, then these movies can do it. Fucking, oh, these are going to sell fucking out. Fucking yeah, yeah. do it, baby. Yeah. Um, even yeah. the ones that you haven't seen. Uh, they, they are lovely, wonderful movies that I'm going to be watching for the dozenth time each. I'm going to cry at each of them. Um, but more on the point of today's episode. Thank you very much for sticking around as long as you have. Uh, we're bouncing around a bit as far as the schedule today because, um, what do you know? Uh, there are way too many good films that screen at the trial on, and we simply cannot cover them all this week. We are going back to the um, Murder, She Wrote series, which, of course, spotlights specifically murder and mystery stories uh, helmed by that is adapted from works by uh, written by women. Uh, and we previously covered Otto Preminger's um, adaptation of Vera Caspery's Laura, uh, part of that Murder, She Wrote series, and it'll be coming to the close uh, after this one more film after the one we're about to, to discuss today. So, guys, can I can I get one more uh, round of applause for women? But we can can we limit it to two claps just to like just like two claps on three. If everybody can go on mic, we're just going to do one, two, three, clap, clap. Okay, so one for each of the remaining movies. Yeah. Uh, one, two, three. That, that's for. I women. Get another one because that's how much I love women. Uh, yeah. that's, if anything's going to get Harry canceled. Um, okay. So, uh, Aaron, give us a little bit of a taste of exile and tell us what this movie is going to be about. 
Yeah, we're talking about Purple Noon, 1960 film, uh, directed by René Clément. Uh, it is based on Patricia Highsmith's 1955 novel, The Talented Mr. Ripley. Uh, Purple Noon stars Alain Delon as Tom Ripley, a uh, poor American who has traveled to Italy to convince one Philippe Greenleaf, uh, played here by Maurice Rone, uh, to return to San Francisco in order to take over his wealthy father's business. Uh, Ripley would be paid $5,000 on Greenleaf's arrival in the States. Uh, Greenleaf, however, doesn't want to return. He enjoys living life to the fullest abroad, um, which often involves using his class to play pranks on Ripley in various uh, humiliating ways. Uh, Ripley is jealous of Greenleaf's lifestyle, as well as uh, he's also jealous of his beautiful fiancée, uh, Marge. Marge, played here by Marie Laforet, I think I pronounced that right, uh, who Greenleaf loves but often mistreats as he often ignores her and frequently spends time uh, with other women. Ripley devises a plan to kill Greenleaf and assume his identity. Uh, he learns to copy his handwriting, his manner of speech, um, thus being able to live his lifestyle in Italy while having access to all of his money. Uh, Ripley, Ripley's plan works for a time. But he must continually uh, evade the police as well as uh, Greenleaf's uh, friends while living his kind of lavish lifestyle uh, in Rome. I think also of note is the fact that uh, Patricia Highsmith's novel was uh, adapted in a variety of other ways, TV shows, radio, theater, et cetera, et cetera. Most prominently, uh, probably the, the 1999 film uh, of the name The Talented Mr. Ripley, a film which had the uh, horrific tagline, how far would you go to become someone else? Uh, that's what I got. Jason, what did you what did you think Man, of really, Purple Noon really and that tagline? What do you think of that too? Dog shit. No question mark in that. By the way, how far would you go to become someone else? Period. No question mark. Just okay. like a statement. So the period makes it kind of cooler, but no, it's still it's still what an awful way to sell this movie. Um, thank you, Aaron, for a wonderful sur- summary. As always, uh, I sincerely really loved this movie. Um, I have no idea why it's called Purple Noon. Just as off the top, uh, I read a couple of reviews that were like, "Hey, search me." I don't know why it's called Purple Noon. That that's not a mean like a phrase of any significance or meaning to the to the plot or to the original story. Um, and in other ways, obviously, other adaptations have had more to the point or direct uh, uh, interpretations. Anyway, um, I really like how this movie is, uh, as Aaron was saying, always like on the verge of losing control. As I understand, that's like a through line of the. Ripley stories from Patricia Highsmith is that um, he has like this intelligence, but he's also like clearly unstable, clearly like just a little bit, uh, you know, maybe a little bit out of his element or like stretching beyond his means all the time. And I feel like the movie materializes that in some really interesting ways. I love how that manifests on screen. There's that um, scene at the marketplace where he's viewing all the dead fish and these like really my favorite scene in the entire movie for sure. I'm so so good. We're going to have to talk about it. It's like the scales of it's like so heavy handed. The scales of justice appear and these grimacing uh, stone faced mantas laid upside down. Really, really disgustingly wonderful scene. Um, But anyway, that's like part of that is like he's sauntering through that scene. I'm getting into specifics where I want to get into generalities in my summary, but like he's sauntering through that scene with his jacket over his back like he's in a Romare film and he's just like floating through this scene appears unperturbed by so much that's going on around him as the music's this weird discordant like probably could come from Hausu type music it's really a fucking incredible scene um i read a piece by excuse me writer wendy lesser she wrote it for the library of america about this movie uh and the phrase that stuck out to me and it seems to reflect that idea is that the movie has a conviction the conviction of a dream in which everything that happens seems both necessary and unprepared for and i really love that so if, if i had to think about like one sentence that summarizes how i feel about this movie it's that we're always like on the edge of something uh, always like anticipating the next thing it's still got that very classic um 
uh, like we want to see him succeed despite him being like doing objectively terrible things and awful things, uh, or at least like illegal things, uh, murder and fraud and, you know, gaslighting, et cetera. That's not illegal, but that should be, uh, Hey, let's, let's th- th- in this, in this, the year of the little freak, let's uh, illegalize gaslighting. Um, the, uh, there is like a through line, which I'm sure we'll tap into of like that desire to exist as something or even just like as, uh, as himself, you get the idea. And I've never read the stories excuse me, but uh, Tom Ripley appears or seems to be like, he's not a socialite. He's not like mover and shaper, shaker, wherever he's from. He seems to be like a wandering purposeless young, like man full of potential who seemed to find, be able to find no way to like actualize it. And when he's hired for this job, he sees his opportunity to literally become something by becoming someone else. Um, so in that way, it, excuse me, it seems like it do, the movie doesn't have so much uh, of like an angle of, um, like trying to present Tom Ripley as somebody trying to prove himself to the world or identify himself against the world, but to prove himself to himself, uh, to like, I, I guess the, the, the through line that keeps coming back to me is that he, um, he has, he could cut and run at almost any time. He's like really well indebted into this guy's life. He's mocked a passport to look and fake like him. He does. There's that really good scene where he's mocking over the, uh, the signature to like forge documents and stuff. He could cut and run at any time, but he decides to insert himself further and further into the like essence of this man's existence, even though the man was defined by a complete lack of ambition and a lack of ability to do anything for himself. Um, I guess like there's just that whole, like he doesn't want to cut and run. He doesn't want to, just take the money and go. He doesn't just want to like better his own position. He wants to change it completely. He wants to be in the life that Greenleaf has. Uh, but unlike Philippe, Tom Ripley, Tom Ripley in a way has to earn it. Um, that like, that's the end of my notes is that is like that whole concept of how against what he's defined against like, uh, how he wants to prove himself to the world. Just a lot of narrative through lines that are going through, um, that are running throughout, but like, still under the guise, and I should like reiterate this, a very watchable, very captivating, very interesting movie. Um, and it's beautiful. Every time that I see that I saw like a new scene of like coastal Italy, the Isle Delfino music starts playing in my head because it's just so pleasant and pastel and like colorful and pest- like be- beautiful stuff um, it, it with such like a, a sinister uh, underline to it. And that makes that market scene in particular uh, stick out all the better. But I've been talking for a long time. Uh, and right now I'm trying to get some work done up in my room. Uh, but there's somebody drunkenly stumbling through the courtyard screaming my name. And I, I, I I'm sorry. I just got to, I go to crack open the window and uh, oh my God, is that, is that Cody? Ahoy. Um, Man, sitting here fuming because that was the segue that I was going to use. I'm going to pretend that this remark didn't happen and I'm just going to use it. Um, I mean, the whole thing, the thing the about difference. that is there are so many scenes of people st- stumbling around <laughs> drunk in this movie that we could really do it every time and it would still be perfectly appropriate. Very, very true. Um, but yeah, thank you. Uh, I'll try and sober up here and string together some cohesive thoughts. Um, I've seen Purple Noon one other time. And actually speaking of anniversaries, uh, I checked my letterbox diary um, almost exactly one year ago to the day. I think like January 21st of last year was when I watched this. So uh, shout out uh, to me. <laughs> and letterbox shout diaries. out to Cody. Uh, no, um, <laughs> oh boy. We give um, him too much power. We, 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 we could, we could rest, wrestle it from him. Do you understand? We could do it here. I, I relinquish it. I give it away. Um, in part because I've, I mean, I have no other experience with, uh, with Tom Ripley. I've not seen any other adaptations. I haven't, you know, read any of the source material. So I, I give some of it back. And incidentally, um, a lot of my notes touch on things that have actually have been mentioned already, which is thrilling. Um, 
but in in a lot of ways. So I'll try not to belabor the point more than I already have. Um, I like this movie, and I knew when I watched it that it would be a movie that I wanted to revisit, um, if for any other reason, because I really like how it looks and feels. Um, something about the specific use of uh, like filming in Technicolor, um, just everything really popped in a way that um, just really struck me. And I enjoy how you can really feel the sun uh, through all of the the shadows it's creating against all these like highly saturated colors. Um, that plus how like sweaty everybody is um, really helps enhance um, and make this like a very sensory uh, laden experience, which I don't know. I, I, I enjoy for some twisted reason. Um, and I guess adding to that look and feel is Elaine Delon, who is... Uh, and anybody who's seen him in a movie, um, like, will not be shocked by this, but he's so good at seeming despicable while also being one of the hottest people to ever exist. And that feels perfect, uh, yeah, energy wise for this movie, right? Like, as a viewer, you need to at least a couple of times question the actual wrongness of this man because Delon charms the pants off you so hard. Um, and you know, one thing I noticed more with this viewing, uh, you know, this, this go around was the physicality of his performance where he's scrambling to be in all the right places at the right time, uh, you know, at the right times, he's trying to hide a body on a boat while combating waves. And he's like generally fearful for his life at every, at every turn. And he's wearing the accompanying emotions on his face as well. Um, like he's very pointedly not a machine about all of this when it comes to his like he's there's like a very human element to it um which i really liked uh and his uh tom ripley his scenes with with marge duvall and philippe greenleaf you know where they're having these sort of uh tete-a-tetes these battles through conversation i realized that those were maybe my favorite scenes in the movie uh where before i would have said i liked this films if you can think of them as sort of two halves i i like them you know in relatively equal terms but i think this time around i was drawn less toward the the caper procedural which is still like i i like this movie through and through through and through but i was drawn more toward the you know the steamy scheming adventures of three hot people on a boat for you know obvious reasons uh where there's you know also the potential for them to explore some of the things they kind of gesture at, you know, like class friction and, you know, love triangles. And um, I get also some of the photography when they're out on that boat is just otherworldly, absurdly good. Um, But there's also, I mean, that again, there are ideas in the latter half that I'd love to have seen more of. Um, We already talked about the scene where Tom's wandering through the street shops and I already had that pinned as like something, it wasn't like my favorite scene in the movie or anything, but it did stand out because, you know, he's very, you know, in that scene while Marge is writing a letter to Philippe, he's wandering around, he's sort of a tourist in this place and also something of a tourist within his own sort of identity um, in his body, if that's not too like extreme to say, Um, but uh, for, well, maybe we'll talk about that for what it's worth all these things might be touched upon more in the books uh, and I would have no idea. So just disclaimer for my own uh, like shortcomings with the source material. I also understand that there's a certain obligation to keeping along a certain narrative track with the movie. Um, So, you know, be that as it may, I do really like purple moon for what it is. I thought it was good, tense, sexy, fun. You know, if I'm, you know, a a walking, talking book cover Uh, it's also a nice antithesis for this depressing, freezing fucking weather that we've been having. Uh, So here's to, to better days, only the best um, in time. Tom Ripley's honor. Um, but guys, actually, uh, I don't know if you've heard this one before. I'm, I'm really sorry, but there's a guy screaming outside my building. Uh, he's he's waving a cane around. I, I think he's drunk. I, I think that's that's Harry. Harry, I'm on. I'm on Mike. Look, if you're not going to go away, you got to you got to come give your thoughts about the movie. What do you what do you say? Harry, do you want to come in here? I'm not drunk, Cody. I'm just happy to see you. I love that scene when the oh. when his friend is like pounding on the door and he's like, God is within. Your genius is within. That's something else about this movie is that I think it's fucking hilarious at many points. There's a there's a part where Tom Ripley, in order to um 
trick somebody into believing that his friend is just drunk instead of dead. He puts a cigarette in his friend's mouth, or in in the guy he's just murdered's mouth, and then he just sits there with him. And then he goes to take the cigarette back when the coast is clear. And there's just a second where he thinks about smoking it himself before he stubs it out. But he like looks at it, and he's you really hear him in his mind thinking, "Am I going to put this dead man's cigarette?" in my lips and it's really good. Um, yeah, I, I really, um, really agree with, uh, what Jason and Cody are saying. I'm really glad to hear that you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, I, I would love to describe this movie as like a, a fucking gorgeous movie about such deeply ugly people. And I think that's like, that's really the point. Right. And I think that so much of this movie is so interested in this really radical and really ahead of its time reframing of, both class and sort of the history of class itself, right? Where like, I love the constant allusions and callbacks to Renaissance paintings or enlightenment paintings, right? Or like, for instance, we're in Rome, we're in Italy, these sites of the old world of like the most beautiful place that there is. And um, meanwhile, the people that are walking through it are all imposters within it, right? Like Philippe, um, Phil, uh, Tom, everybody in those movies are not, they're not, I'm sorry I was I was tripping over myself. Um but uh they they don't belong there, right? They're they're like these men of leisure that are sort of like existing in contrast to their surroundings and in contrast to who they're supposed to be. And so everyone in this movie has this sort of very well illustrated um imposter syndrome that I really uh that really stuck out to me. And especially the, the homoeroticism between Tom Ripley and Philip is really, really fascinating because um, Tom says at one point that uh, Marge, his fiance is in love with a version of Philippe that doesn't exist. Um, I thought that that was sort of a very key line to the entire movie, um, which I really, really appreciated because it's sort of like Tom being this class outsider, he can see class for what it is, which is this deeply immoral, deeply domineering sort of, of like world colonialism that's been playing out through history and time. And that gives him this incredible advantage because he can see these people for what they really are. And he can see himself for what he really is for wanting to be a part of it. Whereas everybody else seems to be trapped in this sort of misapprehension of themselves as actually having earned the money that they now have or actually belonging in the world that they belong. Um, it's a really fascinating makeup and it, it, it makes for this really great sort of like moral, uh, turpitude to use the uh, serious man um, reference where like like Jason had said I really you are really kind of rooting for Ripley but only because he is as ugly as everybody else in this world there's almost the sense in which because he's honest about it with himself he is sort of like the moral protagonist anyway um, which I really liked uh, and I thought was like a really unbelievably affecting way of of reframing um the art in this movie and the beauty that we get to see, right? Like by the end of this movie, you really are seeing the world through the eyes of the psychopath, Tom Ripley, right? Like I, I think that the, um, that scene in the, um, in the, in the marketplace is a perfect example because we get to see Tom Ripley looking at this when he is a, an outsider to himself and to his identity into the marketplace, like Cody was saying. And he's looking at the dead fish and he's looking at the fish heads. And like, you can tell he's thinking about like the brutality of nature and the ugliness of actual things. And it's such a deep, remote contrast to the beauty that surrounds him and the beauty that he's trying to insulate himself inside of. And he brings that ugliness 
into the world with him or rather reveals that that's what it always was. That's even what the title means to me. I mean, I know that I personally just think Purple Noon is a great title because it's so affecting and it, it's so evocative. But it's like, like noirish, right? What's that? It, it sounds like a great film noir for some reason. Yeah, yeah, I don't know, or like a Western or something. Is. Yeah, it it and this is very much sort of a film noir, right? In in sort of a weird like slant way. But it's it's also just like sort of it it's about like I think Tom Ripley sees the purple noon, right? Like he he's the guy who sees the world in this actual like terrible way. And I think that we're supposed to be alienated from him and terrified by him for his psychopathic reasoning and his um vision of humanity and history and class. But we're also supposed to come to come around to it, right? By the end of this movie, we see his point, right? And that's the really terrifying, stark thing about this movie, right? And he's even right in the sense that Marge falls in love with him for the same reason she fell in love with Philippe, and that's the darkness inside of him, the ugliness that is actually latent to his core. Um, and even Marge, who, who sort of denies that that exists or won't admit to it, is attracted to it in that way. So I really loved all those things. Um, I had read that the author... Uh, really hates the ending of this movie. I agree with her. I, I really, agree, yeah. I deeply think that the movie should have ended when he said only the best on the beach. The movie definitely should have just faded to black. I will say, though, that it almost brought me around in the sense that um, Tom was undone by the fact that he didn't know how to work the mechanisms of class properly, right? Like literally his plan gets hung up on the boat because he doesn't know how to use the boat properly. And then I really love the way that it feels like a tragic ending as in the sort of like sense that even the people who can make themselves every bit as brutal and every bit as selfish and self-interested as the people in power will never be able to actually grasp that power because even if even if they've sort of like sold their soul for it so there's sort of a great tragic irony to the end of this movie that being said i still agree with uh the the author and ebert and uh aaron which that's a good transition point aaron tell me about all of your feelings but also the ending uh thank you for agreeing with me folks that is the first harry aaron alliance of 2022 you will see many more uh uh yeah, uh, P- Purple Noon uh, uh, is really good. I really quite liked it. It works on several different levels. I think there's kind of two, uh, there's two kind of main levels that it works on, right? There's this this entertaining kind of thriller, you know, Ripley trying to evade the police and the detective and whatnot. Um, and then I think there's this kind of uh, a deeper, um, I don't know, a little more bookish maybe uh, exploration uh, of the, the social aspects of class, right? Um, it also works on a third level, however, which is watching a, cool ass guy who I agree with ethically in every way showing absolute 10 out of 10 fits uh, while abroad. I love that. Love that for him. He looks so good in this movie. Uh, he, he has convinced me. I do not have a cool looking white shirt. I've always been worried about just like staining it, it looking gross while I'm out and about. I'm going to get a cool ass looking white shirt uh, for the summer. I think I'm going to tuck it into gray slacks. I'm going to, I'm going to look like, I mean, shit, honestly, but gonna... and also like to- class comrade, Tom Ripley, right? I mean, he, he said, eat the rich, literally take their place. <laughs> I mean, he did nothing wrong, basically, I think. So my point is that maybe, maybe I missed it while some shenanigans were happening on the, the camera here that we don't need to get into, but I am very surprised that we got this far without uh, anybody mentioning uh, like a comparison to Parasite, uh, because this is a very, very, uh, not similar movie in a lot of ways, but this is doing a lot of similar stuff specifically, uh, when looking at, yes, those, those social signifiers of class and how 
the upper class uses these social signifiers to kind of protect and to guard their wealth and status, right? Um, any sort of actual skill that Tom Ripley needs to gain in order to uh, be rich, pretend to be rich, take over the life of, of Greenleaf is very easily made up, right? He spends a little bit of time learning the signature. Uh, you know, he, he learns to kind of do this kind of vocal uh, affectation uh, over the phone. And then once he does that, he is, he is assumed uh, the life of this upper class person, right? The thing that is um, separating those two people, uh, of course, there's the big one, the, the amount of money that, that and this figures, you know, Greenleaf's case he was born with. Um, and this other character, uh, the differences there are very minor and very easily learned. And the fear is that like, oh, this person can actually very easily assume, uh, uh, you know, uh, the identity that I have for myself that was given to me uh, with money and, and birth. I think that that's very interesting. Parasite, obviously, I think maybe dives into that a bit deeper with, uh, you know, the family kind of learning all of these uh, different ways to function as these kind of housekeepers. Um, but again, they, they learn these social signifiers. I think that's that's really fascinating. Um, I think that this entire film, though, is kind of built on one thing, which is uh, Elaine Delon's performance, um, which is so good and like exquisite. And I think even despite the the genre, this kind of tense thriller uh it's very subtle in a lot of ways right he, he's so good at switching from this um s- seeming like this shy uh kind of weaker companion uh to maurice uh renee's character of, of philippe greenleaf um and he switches to this more confident person the minute that he murders him and he assumes his identity um and that that performance is i think what the film is built on we really see him um, kind of coming into his own, his clothing changes, right? Uh, the way that he kind of carries himself changes. Um, you know, at some point, um, at some point, uh, uh, Marge even says, you know, you, you've changed as well. And it's kind of pointed out very uh, notably by the film too. Um, I, I really liked his performance. I think that um, this is a film that also doesn't have a lot of the other elements that films in this genre typically have. There's no true foil apart from Greenleaf himself at the first half of the film. There's no foil from like a police standpoint, right? Like there is the detective character. They have a little bit of a back and forth, but it's, it's not a true kind of one-to-one relationship that you would expect out of a, a thriller like this, right? Um, something like catch me if you can, for example, is very similar to this film. Um, but, but does have a character who, who acts as that foil. You don't get that as much. And so you do rely on on the performance, uh, Delon's performance, in order to to really make this film work. So I really liked it. Um, yeah, I just man, I fucking want it to be summer. <laughs> I want to go on a vacation somewhere. Is kind of my my like final thought is like I am so ready for this this winter hellscape to end that I can go murder people in Italy. I think. Yeah, I, you touched on two things I wanted to mention real quick because I think they're really good points. First of all, with Parasite, I think that maybe the most sort of salient comparison there is the fact that like these characters, their whole identity is built on this sense of like outsized entitlement on the basis of the status and the wealth that they've always possessed, right? Like, I don't think anybody in this movie has an actual job except for um, Marge, and that is mocked, right, at one point. In Police, her, I in guess, her- yeah. Yeah, and her manuscript is thrown into the seat. Well, the police don't count. They're not people. Um, yeah, no, you're right. But uh, 
And I, I love the the like very real class motivated contempt that Tom Ripley has for them because again we we fully understand where that contempt comes from, which is that this entitlement exists on nothing, right? Like these are people who are so sure that they own the world, that they traverse it with this incredible freedom, that they're free to use it for whatever they want. They literally buy a blind man's cane out from under him in the first scene. They they pick up a woman and then abandon her in the next scene, right? Like these are these are people who are free to traverse the world without any consequences and free to be whoever they want to be almost because they feel that they have that right. Right. And they exist in this insulated world. And for somebody like Tom Ripley, who has existed outside of that world, but desperately wants to be a part of it, he has that contempt and that drive, like gives him this class motivated reason to do these things and to become the sort of person who can belong in those circles, right? So like we can we can clearly see his class motivations and we can see what those motivations are, right? Like there's this there's this great sense in which it's like in I think a simpler or less interesting movie would sort of be like, oh, Tom Ripley is like this crusader, right? Who wants to like bring down the high class. He wants to um, show them that they aren't the people that they're supposed to be, that they actually like they're pretending is is just that it's pretend it's an affectation that's not tom ripley though right like i think very crucially in this movie it's like he doesn't want to have anything to do with justice he has fully internalized their value systems right in fact he just wants to join it his his way of proving himself is actually proving himself as cold and bloodthirsty and performative as any of them and thereby join, joining their circles and um to aaron's other point like that's that's what i really love about um delon's performance here right is that i think that he he affects all of these different identities and performances and there's this sense that there's nothing underneath any of them right that the performance is is all like he's he doesn't seem to be or he can switch between these affectations so easily and without with so little friction because there is no tom ripley at all right like by the time we first see him he is in this movie like he is already performing he is performing throughout the movie maybe the most honest sequence we see is that marketplace sequence where we get to see like that little bit of interiority but for the most part none of that is there because that's not the point right the performance is the point and the the machiavellianism is the point which i really really appreciated yeah i I think it's it's very important there's a bunch of uh like very subtle uh like really nice bits of writing in this film that i i think uh, you know, I, I, I haven't read the book, but I think maybe we can attribute it to, uh, uh, Patricia Highsmith's original novel. I, I guess I don't know. Um, but I think like the fact that, that, that Ripley is American is I think so like important to the, the core of this film, right? Like he is an American, uh, in kind of the old world, right. Surrounded by, by money that is, uh, uh, generational at the very least. Right. I don't think, I don't think we're given the, the, uh, any information about, uh, uh, Greenleaf's kind of heritage and whatnot right but the, the i think it's highly implied that it's generational right like it's his dad's money and his it, dad it's definitely his dad's money but is his, is his dad italian did they come over they're in san francisco right but there's this kind of question of 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 that that heritage that i don't think is is fully answered at least in the film but the the idea that like ripley is an american right who is abroad in in rome in italy in the country that is i think maybe except for france maybe kind of representational of this this um kind of classic uh wealth and uh luxury 
uh, and whatnot. Um, and he, he views these things around him as like the ultimate goal to attain, right? Which is why at the end he says, you know, give me the best you've got, right? That is what he wants. He wants to, he wants to, uh, uh, well, he sells the boat, right? But he wants to have the boat metaphorically. He wants to be able to sit at these, you know, Italian cafes, eat dinner, sit out in the sun, enjoy this lifestyle. Um, you know, I, I wrote down like a note that like, I thought it was very dumb, uh, of, of Ripley, but also very funny that like the first thing that he does is he kills Greenleaf and then he immediately just goes back to Rome. Like he doesn't hoof it to Brazil, right? He doesn't flee somewhere else with all this money. He, he goes back to Rome because the thing is not that he gets all this money and leaves. He wants to assume this identity. He wants to live this lifestyle, uh, that, that he was deprived of. Right. And so he does make a lot of illogical, uh, decisions because and he has to do so in order to, you know, assume this, this upper class lifestyle. Um, I think that, that all that stuff is like very subtle and nice and maybe not like the most logical decisions for a character to make, but it shows a character who is, whose flaws are based on his, his desire for, for, uh, certain things so yeah definitely and i i think the the subtlety that comes with that is sort of like it, it the movie is stronger because of it like i i like that it's not necessarily being shoved down our throats instead i get to look at pretty things and the sort of class friction and like those impulses sort of live in the background and uh i don't like something i was thinking about while watching that i didn't really feel the need to delve deeper into instead until i started listening listening to you fellas and so i'm like kind of thinking about it now where you know, um, I guess the sort of things that are in the background, um, like there's also uh, with, um, what's his name, Freddie. Um, and we get it sort of at the end with, um, I believe, Boris, the dancer, who like everybody seems, or not everybody, but there are people, peripheral um, characters uh, in this sort of plot that seem to be wary of Tom or just like, I don't like him. I don't like what he does. You know, just like I'm wary of, you know, his, his way of living, just like, the types of things he he does to to sort of get by and um you know i think there is really something to um i guess what all of us on some level have been talking about the the need to like uh like hi- like hiding and and um like whether like whether or not tom's revealing a certain truth and the sort of ugliness that's behind that and then viewing it as a sort of transformation and like um i think about one uh, it's, it's at the end, it's when Tom and Marge are together and Tom, like sort of out of character for him. I mean, we see it in, in like glimpses, like earlier in the movie, but he just gives like, he's like sort of wooing Marge. He's, uh, it's like, it's, it's a steamy scene, but it's weird because he looks, it's just a close up on his face and he looks so it's like, he's glaring. Um, like, I don't want to say it's angry. It's just like this, this very powerful, firm, like he's glowering this look that he gives her. And like, I, I, and it like leading up to that scene, I couldn't help but think, I mean, there, there is a reason that these people are like, um, that Boris and like when he goes back to the ballet, everybody seems to be their ups on every single one of those characters. Everybody seems to like suspect him in some sort of unspoken way. Again, like I love that. It's not, you know, we're, we're not explicitly, there was not a conversation we see with them beforehand of like, yeah. Oh, what do you think would happen? What do you think about what happened to Philippe? I don't know. I think Tom had something to do with that. It's all like, written on their faces. And like, I, I just, part of me thinks, you know, is there something he's, he's giving away? Is that look an indication of some sort of uh, acknowledgement of status or like transformation completed or something like that? Maybe related, maybe not related, but I couldn't help but like link that in my head to the first uh, or the introduction scene we get to Marge where like, it, it's like a, a it's a gobsmack it, it hits me it, it, we the first shot we have of her she also has this look of just like contempt on her face um because of uh tom and philippe coming in late and like uh, it's different for her. obviously she's in a, a like this there's a sort of unspoken um 
bit of uh, you know means. You know, she has Philippe. She's you know working on her on her own thing. She's also a woman, so the the situation like the uh, the power dynamics are completely different. But like I couldn't think of I couldn't help but think of those as sort of like maybe thematic bookending, maybe not. Um, but I don't know if there's anything to that. But I the I, I guess it goes back to what Aaron was saying about how Elaine Dolan's performance is like it, it's so crucial and it's so good and it's so nuanced in the way that he and everybody are able to sort of express things in very unspoken ways, just especially in the latter half of the film, just by what's on their faces is like really, really awesome. Yeah. And specifically the way, like you were saying, Cody, it's Alain Delon's performance and also the way everyone reacts to him, right? It's like, there's this unbelievable intuitive friction, not just the police officer, but like all of the people in these class circles that he interacts with. It's like, they know in their like intuition that he's a predator. So like, there's this lingering sense of, unease that that hangs over every scene and um i i really love that and i love in the first third how the way they treat um tom is very fascinating right like there's this there's this terrible infantilization and dehumanization where like philippe in particular acts very paternalistic to tom in the sense that he he treats tom like tom doesn't know what he's talking about like he has to be taught these basic things because he didn't come from this world and even uh marge though she sort of pities it and at one point tells um philippe to knock it off she really like everybody underestimates tom right everybody treats him like he's he's like this animal almost because he's not a part of this class world and like that creates such a palpable resentment that you can see how it leads to these illogical decisions on the part of tom and that that was the other thing i wanted to talk about right because like i totally agree with aaron and uh cody that a lot of what tom does doesn't make any sense in particular like tom uh, he has all of the money that ever belonged to Philippe from his bank account, and he gives it back to Marge, contingent on getting it back via this like unbelievably high stakes and difficult to pull off seduction ritual that he he then has to undertake. It's like, why would he not just take the money and run? But it's like it's like he's the devil in this movie, right? It's like he he exists not only to come out on top, but to in doing so like demonstrate how evil everyone really is right and to sort of devalue the entire world so like it's like he's the count of monte cristo in in this really dark twisted way where it's like his his revenge plot is so much bigger than just these people it's it's like it's not even personal right it's like he is going to make it to the top of the world and in doing so demonstrate what it means to get to the top of the world and what it has always meant to get to the top of the world right like i think that he's thinking of himself as like nero caesar you know like this is this is a guy with like historical ambition he's like I'm going to get my money the way that everybody got their money since way back. And the way I'm going to do that is by being the worst human being on the planet by whatever means necessary. Right. And like, if he falters, it's, it's because he doesn't have institutional support yet, but like it's, it's wild. Right. I think that that's really why Tom Ripley acts the way he does. Um, and it's, it's a really fascinating characterization and it's so fun to watch all of the other characterizations of this character who always sort of like preserve that core integrity. Um, but, but do such wild different things with it. Like for instance, Vim vendors, um, he, uh, created a movie out of another Ripley story, uh, which is actually called The American Friend to Aaron's point. And, uh, Ripley is played by fucking Dennis Hopper. 
<laughs> and it's like it is a Dennis Hopper ass Dennis Hopper performance and it's like it's unbelievable like I think that this is maybe the only character that it would ever make sense for both Ilan Delon to play him and Dennis Hopper <laughs> but it but they both do great jobs and they both like demonstrate different aspects of this sort of like class demon and I really really like that his as you said his like Mon- count of Monte Cristoing uh I like how it only comes into focus over the course of the movie. Like you said, he like he's painted a little bit as like coquettish as go along as like sidekick ish uh, right up until about he actually like because there's this long elongated sequence that actually lasts a couple of scenes where he and Philippe are discussing how Tom would actually kill him and take his identity like they play with that idea for a long time over the course of the movie. And it's almost comedic because he's like, well, what would you do with the, you know, the boat or account? what about Marge? And like they go through the logistics of how he would kill and replace. Yeah, well, and, it's, it's, and even it's then so good. Ripley like exploits his paternalism, right? Where like he he's sort of like, oh, you got me like, ooh, wasn't that silly of me? As if like Philippe is the real mastermind for having found this. Yeah. Right. And it's like Philippe feels like he's in control right up until the knife enters his heart. And it's literally the most like straightforward way you could kill a man is to like distract him by tossing something on the ground and then just whoop yoinking him in the chest. He started slipping for sure to get caught by that one. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) God, that was that was so good. I I just love how like it takes over the course of the movie and these out because like his subversions of this like whole concept of class and like his crossing those lines. It happens like throughout the movie. He's, you know, playing with the guy's finances. He's writing up a will. He's like gaslighting everybody left and right. But the like his outbursts of violence, but from um, uh, Philippe to Frankie, et cetera, are like the moments when we realize, oh, he's like actually capable of some very, physically very terrible things. He dumps uh, Freddie's body in, or Frankie, Freddie, Freddie's body in the middle of like some ancient ruins and like realizes, oh, this is, this is actually pretty easy. Nobody will get me because Philippe did it sort of thing. Like, you re- yeah, he's season three Hannibal, right? <laughs> He's El Monstro, literally. You get to see him becoming, like, realizing that he's evil and loving it. I, I, I love that that happens over the course of the movie. But to me, like, it underscores and moments like that and moments like when, um, like you mentioned the line, uh, you love a Philippe that doesn't exist. So this is before he's uh, killed Philippe. He talks to Marge and she's, like, discussing her relationship with Philippe and how he's, you know, not really there for her. She's kind of like uh, aspirationally his beloved sort of thing. Uh, and he's, and uh, Tom tells her, you love a Philippe that doesn't exist. There's a time when uh, the inspector, you know, when there's suspicion on Mr. Ripley, he keeps calling Mr. Risley. Then there's another moment when um, I think it's earlier when Ripley goes to the bank to try and sell off uh, the, the boat and pay off Philippe's debts and like get clear, which again, really weird move for a huckster like that to make is like pay the, like settle the other guy's debts and get rid of his boat for it. Just weirdly like real freak shit. Um, but he calls him Mr. Greenloff a few times and he corrects him. He's like, Nope, green leaf that like, there's an implication there. I think specifically to those moments. That's like, there's something, um, uh, like inhuman about people who can live like Philippe does like totally unearned, not really like he he's on another planet there's this is not a material reality that exists for somebody like tom though we don't really know his specific material upbringing uh, and so tom literally like removes that aspect of his identity his humanity by killing him by ridding him of of the earth you know and it's like it's that impermanence of identity and how close people get to knowing each other that cody's point about like those like suspicious faces in a movie in a point where you're not really sure if they're supposed to be suspicious yet and these glowering like close-ups that really drive that home throughout that it's like it's hard to see it as a movie of like punctuated moments of suspicion and turns and twists when the whole movie is just like steeped in this 
gross, weird, suspicious feeling. And yet the pastel Isle Delfino ness of it all just like brings your spirits back up, keeps you wanting to watch it. It's such a good balance. Well, but, but in even more to the point with that Island thing, by the end of the movie, you have reframed the way that you think about those aesthetics and that sort of like history in the first place, right? Like you come to see the beauty of the old world of Rome, of Italy, of those Renaissance paintings and those enlightenment paintings in this new context, right? Once they're introduced with Ripley where it's like, oh, this was always about Machiavellianism and the sort of like immaterial unreality that you're describing, Jason, which is why like that quote you had is so good where it says like this is a movie that feels like it takes place in a dream because that's so true, right? Like, and I think that the movie goes to great lengths to show you that everyone except for Tom is living in that world, the dream world. Tom is so desperate to enter that dream world and he is trying to do so by recreating the methodology in which these people's ancestors entered it in the first place, right? And I think that Marge is a really fascinating character for that reason too, in that she is like as much a part of these worlds as everyone else, except, and maybe you can make a, an argument that this is sort of a sexist um, idea, but like she's too naive to see that, right? Like she actually thinks she's in love with Philippe. She thinks Philippe's in love with her. She thinks Philippe is this good guy. And it's like, Tom is, is all about showing her that like, no, you're even the reason you're even attracted to Philippe is because he's not a good guy. Right. And like, it's so interesting how she uses the same techniques that Philippe had used on her uh, to Tom in this sort of like wild scene where she's like, I slept with Tom because she's trying to hurt um, Philippe, but Tom is on the other end and he's like, oh, look, it's like, it's like watching a little bit baby trying to like recreate dad's tricks, right? It's like, oh, it's so cute that you're trying this, right? But it, it also like, it speaks to the fact that she is actually like also morally corrupt and also a participant in this world, right? Uh, let's get one more round of applause for women, everybody. Round of applause for women, Marge specifically. Jesus Christ. <laughs> How many claps? Uh, oh, just, we're doing countdown. Okay, yes. Thank you, thank you. Um, the last thing that I want to go for one last, uh, you know, discussion point is, and I really wanted to talk about the market scene, especially since we had like different perspectives, different viewpoints of it. Um, so to set it up, uh, there's a scene in which Marge is occupied with business, uh, and um, I forget exactly what she's doing. But Tom decides to just take a stroll through the local fish market and uh, and str- and just wanders past dead dead like in what we one of those objective senses like pretty gross uh scene just because there's like a lot of dead animals and you know they're slightly personified like there are face up man or manta rays that look like they've got little fun faces on them there are literally like scales uh embodied like meant to symbolize i believe the like the scales of justice it's a very like straightforward heavy-handed scene but and my takeaway from that was like tom is he's kind of like casually nonchalantly unaffectedly passing through this whole scene passing through almost like the whole plot of the movie in ways uh without a whole lot of like being i I guess he's not there's no affect to how he's coursing through he's like sampling the food and like wiggling around these little tiny fish and shit i just wanted to get you guys' temperature level on that scene where it fits in the movie how you felt about it if it made you think about other parts of the movie differently etc no for sure i and again, I, I, like I said up top, I, I, it's not like it all, it, it struck us. It's a very striking scene. It's not by any means like my favorite part of the movie, like, but I, I do still really like it. And I think uh, trying to unwrap why I, 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 there, it's certain, it's not like explicit 
vulnerability, but it is a moment wherein like, he's not like Tom is not orchestrating and it like, he's just, he's just vibing, you know, throughout this, this seaside town. It's like, you know, like when you're in school, you know, your, your teacher is in the class, like the, the teacher has uh, varying levels of control over you in the classroom when you're like in school. Uh, but it's like, you know, outside of school hours, you see them at the, at like the supermarket. It's like, Jesus, what the, like, that's like, not quite the same, but that's like, in retrospect, it's that like flavor of feeling where, you know, like we, we saw Tom under duress moments ago, trying to like, hide a dead body to, uh, um, you know, get this, this, keep this ship from keeling over. And this is just, you know, he's with Marge. He's still like, he's still actively scheming. And then he just sort of volunteers. Oh, like, well, I don't want to be over her shoulder while she's writing a a letter to, um, her, uh, partner who's dead, I believe by this point, she's like, okay, I'm just going to go walk around. And, you know, like the little, you know, glances that he, as he's trying things and like making eye contact, that's not like, it's not pointed eye contact like all the rest of these like shots of people's faces have been like it's like there there seems to be notes of him being curious him being like him you know trying something different again without like being uh, uh consciously tied back to like this this scheme that he's in for 98 percent of the rest of the movie um i don't know that was just like that's the first thing i thought of anyway um i don't know if that rings true for you too harry if you felt something different Definitely. Yeah. I think that that scene, and I've talked about it a little bit already, but um, it's really the linchpin of the sort of like reframing process that this movie takes you on. Um, And I really love his placement within it, right? Because it's like to smile and smile and be a villain, right? It's like here we have a man who could not belong less in the environment in which he is taking up, right? Everything about him is a lie. Everything about his nonchalance is a lie. Everything about his money and status and appearance is a lie. He is there under false pretenses. He is doing something false, right? But doesn't he look like he belongs there? Like, doesn't it look like he just is the perfect poster boy for a tourism commercial during that scene? Even as we get to see that in his head, there is madness and psychosis as he looks at the dog eat dog world, right? I mean, literally he's a wolf in sheep's clothing or maybe a shark in sheep's clothing in that scene. But like at the very same time, he he looks like he makes perfect sense in that scene. And I it's like visual poetry, man, right? It's like uh, you're supposed to hold those two ideas, those two contradictory ideas in synthesis in your head, right? Because all of a sudden you're supposed to see, wait a minute, both can be true. It can be true that Tom is this terrible Machiavellian psychopath and that he perfectly belongs in this setting by the seaside looking at the fish and taking in the beautiful purple noon because in fact that's exactly who these people always have been right that is that is the real sort of like um that's the real face of the history of money and status and power has been to do these things to smile and be a villain and like it's ooh, that's such a good scene that's the real purple noon uh yeah that scene where that one um lady on the street calls uh tom and philippe sharks that so Perfect. And I just, in my head, I was referring to them as specifically Tom as a shark, the rest of the movie. Um, I I think it was in that same scene when they're in the carriage and it's like the woman's in the middle and Philippe's on one side, Tom's on the other. They have that like nice bro moment where they sort of like peek out and they're like smiling and nodding at each other. It's like, bro, can you believe this is really happening? And then it's all downhill from there. Um, Had to call that out because it made me um, smile in a shitty way. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe, maybe we're at uh, final thoughts moment does anybody else have any larger uh, ideas or concepts they want to they want to drag on before we uh 
before we get to final thoughts. Because that's how I like the. Correct, correct me if I'm wrong, but the detail about Tom uh, uh, making up or not making up the detail that he was Greenleaf's childhood friend, is that ever resolved in the film? I don't think it no, is, right? Which like, is very good. That's people, another very subtle. Yes. Yeah. Like, because Philippe could be fucking lying to Marge too, right? So, like, we don't know who is telling the truth or if, if the truth is anywhere in any of their statements, right? Yeah. I, I kind of took that, 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 that you're supposed to kind of decide one of two things. One is that uh, Greenleaf is correct and that Ripley is lying. This is like an indicator of his, you know, desire, even like this, this, at that point, very fucked up desire to kind of take over this, this personality and this lifestyle. Um, even so going so far as to like developing something kind of out of whole cloth that, and then lying about it to the person in question, or there's the other side to it, which is that Greenleaf, due to his wealth and his kind of relationship, that this kind of relationship where he humiliates this person, um, doesn't maybe even remember this person who considered him a friend, who looked up to him at a young age, probably due to his, his wealth and status, right? Um, I think both of those interpretations are good and valid. I think the point is that I don't think we know, right? Um, it's great. That is one of my favorite little small details about this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, speaking of final thoughts in last details, that's a really great point, um, Aaron. And and their whole like foil relationship is so good because it's like Tom really is like the making of Philippe's entire life, right? Like whether or not it's true, and I think that Tom would say that it doesn't matter, right? Like Tom rewriting his history on the fly is what Tom does, and it's like one you get the impression that had he gotten away with it, like nobody would ever know. He has no reason to tell anybody, and he would have just become Philippe Greenleaf, right? It's totally chill or whatever, right? He would have just taken the money and and become a new person. Um, that reminds me of the other best scene in this movie, which um I forgot to mention, but uh the real little freak scene in the in the beginning when we really get a sense of who Tom Ripley is when he puts on Philippe's clothes and then kisses himself in the mirror after impersonating Philippe and even Philippe who saw that's that that's a is nasty like, oh. maneuver yeah, yeah, he's like, wait a minute, shit, something is going on. This guy is not a well man, <laughs> right? He even asked him if he's nuts, but it's so chilling and it's so appropriate, right? It's like, oh, I get it. Like, Tom is really coming for all of it. <laughs> he's not He's not here for the $5,000. He's not here for the short game. He's you know, not it's here like, for, yeah, he's not here for the woman. He's not here for the man. He's here for like the 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 identity, the, the, the whole being, you know? He's going to replace them. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, they're already lizards and people skin anyway. Um, there was a moment when he's on the boat, uh, when he really gets pulled back on the boat, I guess, for context. After, um, well, well, one, when Philippe sends him out on his little dinghy uh, extended by rope and leaves him to like bake in the sun, he's like, ah, a little bit of exile, says the rich guy to the guy who's like traveling across the fucking ocean to make $5,000. Like, this guy is the guy who needs to experience a little exile, right? But after that, when he's pulled back on deck uh, and Marge touches his back and he screams, I, I said out loud to myself, more like Mr. Crisply. Uh, and that is, that's my final thought. If anybody has any before we. Uh... I wish we would end it on that one, but I, I had to point out, I was, uh, I gave a, a glowing rave review up top to the, like the physicality of this performance and how the camera shows Tom Ripley scurrying about trying to, you know, tie off all the loose ends when, uh, after he killed Freddie and disposed of the, or like, you know, set up the body in a way, a way that suggests, you know, his death was caused by something else. Uh, he's back at, you know, the place he's staying, 
police are down front and he uh, clambers out onto the roof of his building. And I I looked at it and I was like, wow, man, wonder how he's going to get out of this one. Cut to he's on the ground, <laughs> just walking away with the suitcase. It's like, oh, okay, well, all right. All right. So he he figured it out. Yeah. Cody, you, 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 you don't play video games, but when you play video games, you realize that there are many manner in which you can, you can, of course, uh, uh, kind of parkour down to smaller rooftops. I prefer to do the slide down a pole and one smooth motion maneuver. That's another one. Do, but do you, do you lose HP that way though? Uh, no, well, it depends on the some, game. Some no, I mean, as long as you make sure your stamina meter is okay, you should be fine. But usually HP should be okay. You got to test if there's fall damage in a game, though. Uh, a lot of PvP uh, mm. games these days don't include it. Um, I think it needs to make a comeback, though. Single player experiences have had that for, for decades, and it's just a, a basic tenet of operating in the world. Thing, so. <laughs> Or you could just do uh, it the uncharted way, where like uh, it it yeah. depends on whether you're supposed to be in the level or not. But <laughs> if you are supposed to make it, you can fall longer than you would die uh, in other distances if you were trying to fall outside of the map. So really, it's all contextual. So like, if Mr. Ripley had landed on the ground during the scene in which he was supposed to land on the ground, he would have been fine. But in another scene, if he had fallen from such a height, he would yeah. die instantly, and the music would yeah. go. Ah. Is there a little notch in the wall that looks like you can grab? it because if there's a notch in the wall you're good if there's not a notch in the wall has somebody painted the wall with a nice primary contrasting color (laughs) that you can actually clamber up it uh, this, uh, is, this is this is an extended. <laughs> this is yeah. This is dumb. Hey, here's another dumb. I know we we briefly talked about it a second ago, but we're we're officially saying yes. Ripley is little freak material. Absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah, we're not even. Are we going to even open it to discussion? Are we going to bring up examples, or is that for I mean, the, 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 It's maybe the apex of. Uh, a compliment for the performance that someone who's yeah. played by Elan Delon can be a little freak, right? Because like <laughs> it seems impossible. They said it couldn't be done. They said he's he's simply too hot. But then, then he, he said it couldn't be like, done wow. beforehand. And this film, and yeah. was like, no sir. Uh, yeah, I think without the scene where he's kissing himself in the mirror, maybe it's questionable. But that that's full little freak territory. Uh, so yeah, I, yes. I, first little freak of the year. Congrats. I- yep. Give claps for the little freaks as well. Yeah, we'll we'll see how he fares at the berries. But yeah, he does everything but but rubbing his hands, you know, to do the little freak thing. He does everything but that in this movie. Uh, okay, that sounds like the final of our final thoughts. Uh, which means we're ready to transition into one final segment of this episode. Uh, Harry, I think I need your help. A little bit of fanfare to get this going. I would be delighted, Jason. It is the segment we like to call. <gasps> Cody's noties. Noties. That was maybe the worst we've ever wow. done. That was okay. Uh I thank you. Wow, gentlemen, for that um hunky introduction. Uh this week we'll be indulging in a little something I like to call Color Me Try Love, wherein we'll use movies with colors in the titles as a springboard for asking some of the most hard hitting questions in in the whole biz. Um, we'll see. What I'll do is present each colorful film name uh, one at a time and subsequently ask a question that is at least loosely tied to that title. Um, After each statement, I'll ask y'all one by one to respond. And today, uh, change the pace a little bit. We'll go in ascending order of number of films each of you have logged on Letterboxd so far this year. Uh, So, uh, that bring uh, as of I should say as of last night January twenty second twenty twenty two. That brings us in order of Aaron, followed by Harry, followed by Jason. Aaron stays winning. 
can't believe I have the least films logged on Letterbox. Can't who could have <laughs> seen that one? I will not read titles on the air, but um, because we're all about please it. don't. Yeah, please do not read the films I've read. Yeah, <laughs> I will. Not. Yeah, the order speaks for itself. Uh, you'll get a point for every correct answer or closest to the correct answer, uh, and the person with the most points at the end wins. That's how these games usually work. Uh, and as always, trivia mafia. Those rules do apply here. Um, so use your noodles, not your Googles. Um, with that, let's jump in. Uh, and actually, in fact, for number one, we'll start with uh, with Purple Noon, which stars our favorite uh, sexy scallywag, uh, Alain Delon. Uh, how tall is Alain Delon? How tall is that guy? Aaron, what do you think? He he kind of gives Short King energy. I don't, he, like, he doesn't seem like, oh... I think I think what yeah. you're doing is is projecting like oh he is exceedingly handsome and like masculine in so many other ways. I mean he's a little freak. Height, he's, by he, definition he, he's a little he, freak. You know, like must yeah level it out. I he I can't have it all. Yeah. Um, no, uh, I'm gonna say you know accounting for for you know uh, accounting for dietary changes over the last few. Di- I'm gonna go five eight. Five eight. Aaron, Aaron is going to go five eight. Uh, now over to People Harry. Harry, what do you think? I think I'll go with five ten. Cody, thank you. Harry's going to go five ten. And Jason, what do you think? I'm going to go six foot flat. Just just six. because I have no metric for that. Hey, totally fair. Um, so going off a few sources on the internet, Alandalon is reportedly. Five foot ten inches. Five foot Shit. ten inches tall. Harry jumps on the board early with a commanding one zero zero lead. Um, hey, fellas, how does it feel yes. to know you're taller than one of the most handsome people ever on? Uh, Basically, screen? that means I'm better looking than he is, right? I think that's how that works. I'm that's super how standard excited work. about that. Yeah. Uh, Alandalon, come on the pod. Put us in our place. We are our heads are too big right now. Um, <laughs> For now, we're going to go to uh, Fuck our you, second. Henry. <laughs> Sock Ray Blue. Uh, for our you second prick. question, we're going <laughs> to. The Rashomon rule, ladies and germs. The Rashomon rule, which is that no film needs to be longer than Rashomon, a perfect film released in 1950 and directed by Akira Kurosawa. Rashomon comes in at 88 minutes. So I ask you all of the following three films, the films that I'm about to read, how many of them do not abide by the Rashomon rule? So I'm going to read three titles. They are Perfect Blue. Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, and Yellow Submarine. I'm putting a little bit of emphasis on the color so we don't uh, lose track of the narrative here. But how many of those three do not abide by the Rashomon rule, Aaron? You don't have to specify which, just looking for a number. You do not. I, you are asking me how many of those films are longer than Rashomon. Correct. Correct. Yep. Uh, I'm going to go two. All right. Aaron is going to go with two. Harry, what are you going to go with? You know, it's between one and two for me. Uh, I guess just to differentiate myself, I'll go with one. You, we lost you muted, Harry. Yeah, you muted way too early. One, I would assume. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go with one. Thank you. Okay, from his lips to thine ears, he's going to go with one. And Jason, what are you going to go with? I'm going to go all three. All three break the rule, baby. I thank. I respect that. Thank you for for rounding it up there. I appreciate it. I, hey, you got to respect the hustle, uh, much like um, the hustle of one Tom Ripley. Uh, it gets his ass in the end, though, doesn't it? Uh, the correct answer is one. 
The correct answer is when one of these titles do not abide by the Rashomon rule, and two of them do abide, going by Letterboxd runtimes. Uh, so Perfect Blue comes in at a, 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 ooh, a just a crisp 81 minutes. Uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, ooh, a, a, a slightly less crisp, but still pretty crisp, 83 minutes. Uh, and Yellow Submarine apparently comes in uh, just pa- uh, past the cutoff at 90 minutes. So, but imagine? a long boy. Hey, really, yeah. really, yeah. Uh, like unbelievably tricky question though Cody in the sense that like you hear Yellow Submarine and you're like oh it's a Beatles music movie that's gotta be but I knew that Perfect Blue was under 90 minutes and I I suspected Snow White was as well because it's animated and it's from like the 50s so I was like it's I think that that's the tricky one so that's why I I guessed the way I did Hey, yeah, uh, behind the music, I love to hear it. Um, I can't imagine Aaron and Jason love hearing the person who got the point saying, ooh, tricky question, right, guys? Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> uh, but hey, we, we'll roll on. Um, as I love saying when it is always very true, this is still very much anyone's game. Uh, so uh, Harry's got two points. The rest of the fellows have zero apiece. We're moving on to our third question. Uh, and you know what? For our third question, I'd like to spend you know, just a moment here talking about film director Jeremy Saulnier, who has directed two films with titles containing colors. We've got Blue Ruin and Green Room. Uh, and uh, now, unsurprisingly, Green Room has a higher Metacritic score than Blue Ruin. Um, you know, spoilers, Even though it's but, a worse uh, movie, that's wild. Unsurprisingly, it has a higher Metacritic score than Blue Ruin. Um, my question for you all is: uh, How much higher is Green Room's Metascore than Blue Ruin? Uh, Blue Ruin's score. So you know these scales are out of a hundred. So I'm basically asking: How many points higher is Green Room's Metascore than Blue Ruin's? Starting with Aaron. Uh, thirteen points. All right, 13 points, says Aaron. I'm locking it in. And what can I lock in for Harry's guess? Yeah, what's really frustrating about this is I just looked at this. I was just looking at this because I just reread the Wikipedia of Blue Ruin for some reason. Cheating? Um, I guess I'm going to, no, like it was a couple weeks ago. but Like just uh, like four I, minutes ago? <laughs> four seconds? Four Did minutes ago? Yeah, uh, I'm going to go with six. I think that uh, it's going to be six points higher than uh, Blue Ruin's. All right, six points higher, says Harry. And finally, Jason, the highest, the most logged movies on Letterboxd so far for the year. He gets to think about the question a little bit longer. Jason, what do you think? I'm going to say nine points higher. I I know that more people have seen Green Room than Blue Ruin, which I've got to assume throws the the average a little bit. Oh, we're doing Metascore. Ooh. Sorry. I'm still going to say nine points. I was thinking Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Oh, I might have. Yeah. Ooh, you fucked right. it. Hey, we got, got them all locked in. Uh, 13 says Aaron. Six says Harry. Nine says Jason. So uh, Green Room. Uh, folks, it has a meta score of 79. And Blue Ruin has a meta score of 78. The difference what? is therefore one point. Uh, Harry's running the gauntlet uh, on you fellas. He was closest with six points. Um, which is still, you know, it's it's over, but it was the closest. Uh, so that's what we're going with. Uh, Harry's got three points. Still very much anybody's game. Um, Shout-outs to Green Room. Uh, for question four, uh, I, speaking of green, I would like to shout out the, the Green Knight as well. Uh, green Knight, which came out last year in the year of our Lord 2021. Going by letterbox logs, um, where does the Green Knight rank? I'm asking, where does it rank in terms of popularity for 2021 releases? So, you know, what uh, numerical slot or place does it occupy in the list of 2021 releases? You know, how how popular is it? Uh, Aaron, what do you think? 
Uh, <laughs> well, there's been that? like six movies released that year, right? <laughs> like, how many movies were there last year? Uh, I'm fuck. Uh, twenty sixth. All right. So Aaron's going with the twenty occupies the twenty sixth most popular. Yeah. Slot. Okay. Yeah. Twenty sixth slot in terms of Letterbox. Well, it's like in Canto. Um, there's I don't know what you know. Letterbox. Yeah. So yeah. Letterbox. We, we, we play Pokemon. Lol. Uh, uh, Harry, um, what do you think? What, what's what's your take on this one? I'm going to go with 13th. Harry is going to go with 13th. Uh, and over to Jason. Uh, what you thinking about Green Knight's popularity last year? I'm going to go with uh, 15th. 1-5, baby. Jason, Jason is going to go with 15th. All right. Uh, as of the evening of January 22nd, 2022... The Green Knight is the 12th most popular 2021 release on Letterboxd. Harry is four for four. Fellas, this is... Uh, no uh, longer anybody's game. Do not... It, 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 might, not, it might not be anybody's game. A tie can still happen. A tie can still happen. Spoilers for the question that I'm about to read off. Um, but it's uh, it's four zero zero, And uh, we've got one more question here. And for our last question, we turn to... Fellas, we turn to... By far, far and away, favorite topic. Say it with me. Sports. 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 We're talking sports this question. Uh, I've collected four sports movies with colors in the titles. And uh, what I'm going to do is read them off and see if y'all can correctly identify each film's primary sport. You know, the sport that's associated with the movie. You will get a point for each correctly guessed sport. So each of you can there forget anywhere from zero to four points during this last question. Cody, is sand no the color? This <laughs> no, but you know what is? If he doesn't say it, I'll say it. Just ask the question. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep reading. Um, Harry's popping off a little bit early, which is uh, I just that's the only good. sports movie I remember. So I'm I know, know I know I look I don't know if this is gonna be easy or difficult. We'll see what happens. Um, but one 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 more thing here here at you know here at Cody's Noties, we're all about evolving and and trying to find the best most funnest means of of doing these exercises for this question i'd like to implement uh something new in the form of a a sort of final jeopardy scenario so um what i'm going to do is i'm going to read off the four films and then each of you just send me one dm of your answers we're we're gonna we're gonna take this we're gonna take this off mic you're not going to read your answers off mic or on mic rather so i'm going to read the four films each of you will send me one dm of your answers so that's one message containing you know four answers in the same order you want them associated with the films i i list off i will then read off the correct answers and then we'll check in with each of your responses afterward and you know adjudicate points and, and things like that um so you know pre- prepare your your devices here the the four films as the battery runs out in my Bluetooth earbud. Uh, the four films are as follows. I've still got one working one. Uh, 1992's White Men Can't Jump. That's the first one. 1992's White Men Can't Jump. Uh, second, 1994's Blue Chips. Third, 1995's The Big Green. And finally, 1999's Varsity Blues. So those are the four films. Um, get those fingers ready as I um, plug in new earbuds just in case. And I'm going to read the four films again just to vamp a little bit, give everybody time. Uh, we've got 1992's White Men Can't Jump, 1994's Blue Chips, 1995's The Big Green, and 1999's Varsity Blues. 
uh, again, for folks who just joined us at, at home, um, the, the, the common link uh, for the films in this game is they have a color in their title. Um, so the secret word here is uh, a, a color, any color. Um, those are them. I'm going to wait. I'm looking. Did everybody send them over Discord? Should I be looking in another app? It doesn't I sent mine anywhere. on Discord. Uh, I'm looking on okay. Twitter. Can I send mine on Twitter? I, I don't really care. I can send oh, it on yeah, Discord. whatever you want. Yeah, wh- wh- uh, you know what? Whatever you whatever Fuck. you want. Varsity, please. <laughs> we got no music playing, so I'm just going to keep, you know... Uh, oh, okay. Okay, that works too. Sorry, I meant to do that before we started answering. No, that's okay. That's totally okay. I've got, I've got Jason's. I've got Aaron's. Um, and I, I'm just, you know, looking... Looking for for Harry's whenever those um, uh, cross into the void, which is the path of my eyes. As I'm also, I've got Harry's here. I'm going to keep talking. Did you notice I sent it on so Hangouts I, just so that we would do three different means of sending the DMs? Really, really good. I love. Yeah, I really love how you did that. That was nice. that was awesome. Um, <laughs> all right, so. Um, Perfect. Thank you for participating. I'm going to rush through this before my other earbud dies. The correct answers. So I'm going to read off the correct answers first. Um, the 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 sports. Here are the sports. The correct sports for these films are as follows. We've got for white men can't jump basketball. For blue chips we have basketball. For the big green we have soccer. And for varsity blues we have football. So those are the correct answers. Now let's go to the tape here. Um, for uh, for one, RB please on twitter.com. Um, I've got white men can't jump, basketball, blue chips, basketball, big green, baseball, varsity blues, volleyball, which is good for, for two points. And that puts him at two points for the game. I'm on, so the, I'm on the board. I would have gotten one you if it wasn't for a, a mixtape series called Blue Chips that uh, I've <laughs> Blue Chips. That's right. Um, all right. And moving down the line here, we've got Harry, white men can't jump, basketball, blue chips, horse racing with three question marks, big green baseball and varsity blues football, uh, which is good for two points. Um, and that puts Harry at six points for the game. Um, and finally over to Jason, um, Let's let's see if at le- he at least got on the board. This is Harry won, um, but we want to make sure everybody can get on the board here. We've got uh, white men can't jump, basketball, blue chips, horse racing, big green soccer, varsity blues, football. Uh, Jason got the most points that round. Shout outs to, to Jason. Oh, yeah, three points for the game. Shout outs um, to horse racing also. Thank you, Jason. Yeah, what, you both got, what the fuck are you guys what, talking about? What, what, okay, well, so because what, you, you gamble. There, you do horse racing at gambling halls. You know, it's like you can do chips on it. Blue right? chips. So you, you guys should listen uh, more to hip hop music. Music. You would have seen the cover of Blue Chip. As you say, yeah. say, yeah, Blue Chip uh, refers to, I, I believe, like a, a like a level of recruit. Shaq's in that movie. Um, I think Nick Nolte's a basketball coach. Anyways, um, well, yeah, they are the uh, aforementioned uh, white men who can't jump, so that's why say, we I, guessed I, horse I, womp womp. The, the thing I really appreciate about this question is that all the colors are like referencing things on the field, and the first one is just white guys. <laughs> I like how that qualified it for this round. It did. Uh, in any case, this has been uh, Color Me Trilove, but don't look so blue because the noties will be back next week pending any sports obligations. I, I don't have any, so I should be here. But thank you for playing. My goodness. Uh, thank you, as 
always, Cody, for making uh, the ends of our episodes the best parts of our episodes. And thank you very much, listeners, for listening to another episode of Try Love. You can get tickets to the final movie in the Murder, She Wrote series uh, playing at the Trilon next weekend as of the time of this recording. I will put a link to the series in the show notes. Uh, you can also get tickets to uh, the Satoshi Kone series. At Kone at the Lone, Kone at the... We might have to mispronounce things just to make like a good, fun, sticky name out of that, but Kone at the Lawn is like the first that comes to mind. Um, it, we'll, we'll make it a thing. Uh, and look forward to our episodes on those movies. Uh, buy tickets to those in particular. And any movie that looks good at the Trilon. Uh, I don't think I've seen one that I would uh, call an objectively, objectively terrible movie, except maybe Fitzcarraldo. Uh, more like Shit's Geraldo. I'm just musing, just riffing, you know, just uh, I can't jump, so I got a joke. Uh, this has been our episode of Trilove. We're a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast, find the Trilon at Trilon Cinema, and at Trilon.org. My name is Jason Daphnis, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Je suis Cody Narvison. Vous pouvez me trouver on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Uh, and I can't speak Italian, so I'm just going to say my name regular, but um, I'm Harry Mackin. You can call me the athlete, I suppose, since I did win the athletics-related Cody's Noties. So Harry, the athlete, Mackin, you can find me, the athlete, at Shiitake Harry. Thank you, and good night. Isn't that more? You're, just, you're like you're like one of the one of those nerds who just memorizes a bunch of a, a, like sports trivia, though, right? Like that's not being an athlete. Oh, no, Cody, Cody, you're an athlete. Cody, so, you're the most sorry, athletic sorry, person here. That sounds like sore losing yeah, to right. me. I'm sorry, I can't understand sore losing. I just remember there was a kid from my elementary school that like that was not athletic, but he just remembered like a bunch of baseball training. He'd be like, "Yeah, Mickey Mantle, 19, whatever," and just like spit it out. And I just remember that guy for some reason. Anyway, my uh, Harry did win this, so congrats, Harry. Uh, uh, my uh, name is aaron you can find me on twitter uh back in the new year at rb please this one goes out to mickey mantle you dance and dance darling what's the point you saw him we are nothing ashes dust dust